Good evening. Zane is setting an alarm clock, and he is setting it to whatever he wants to set it to. That's not a joke. He's really doing that. Um, I'm doing this to illustrate a point. When that alarm goes off, I'm done. I'm mid-word, I'm done. Because I want to emphasize the, the abruptness of Jesus is coming back. And when he gets here, there's not going to be time for wrapping up, for invitations, to make final arrangements. That's it. I want to drive that point home this evening. Zane was told, you can't set it for two minutes, and you can't set it for two hours. But other than that, you can set it for whatever you want. But once, it's, once it hits, I'm out. Okay? So, let's do the end at the beginning. And let's start with the invitation. There was a, a gentleman many years ago, a preacher in the Lord's Church, who went to preach in a tent meeting. You know, they used to have those. And he finished, and he gave a soul stirring invitation. He begged and pleaded with the congregation, if there was anyone there tonight who was not right with God, please take care of that before you leave. And the soul leader read the invitation song, and even during the invitation song, the preacher stopped him a couple of times and read some more verses and gave another plea and begged the people to get right with God before they left there that evening. And when he was finished, a little lady came up to him, and she was rather upset. She said, why did you do that? Why did you beg and plead with people? Why don't you just, why don't you stand up, preach, and sit down and be quiet? Why did you have to do that? And so he looked at her, and he saw that she had a Bible, and he said, can I see your Bible? And he opened it up, and he read from 2 Corinthians 5, 10 through 11. He read these words to her, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men that we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. And then the man handed the Bible back to the lady, and he said, that's why I do it. Because I know the terror and the fear of the Lord. What if this church building were on fire and you didn't know it, and I did? You had no clue that it was on fire. I knew that it was, and I had to bring that message to you. Now, it would be good if I would be calm and collected, but you can forget about that. I would be up here saying, get out of the building as quick as possible. It's on fire. Take any exit, but just get out of here. But what if I stood up here and said, uh, hey, guys, uh, Church is on fire. You might want to do something. I think sometimes that's how preachers deliver the invitation, as if it's not really urgent, that it's just casual. It's you know, it's an invitation. It's an addendum at the end of the sermon. That's really all it is, isn't it? Folks, listen to me. This is as close to a hellfire brimstone sermon you'll ever hear me give. But if you are not right with God tonight, understand that you have no hope. Zero. The Bible is clear on that. That's not me talking. If you are not right with God, if you are living in persistent sin, if you are someone who is outside of a relationship with Christ, if you have not in faith repented, confessed Jesus as Lord, and been immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins, 
you're not going to make it. And how awful would it be to spend eternity separated from the Heavenly Father, knowing that it didn't have to be that way. Knowing that you had every opportunity to turn around and to change the course of your life, and you just didn't see it as urgent. How awful would that be? Jesus could come back in the next five minutes, or you could leave this earth before dawn breaks tomorrow. There is no better time than the present. Look, I am a dying man preaching to dying men. I mean, that's how it is as a preacher. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. You don't either. And despite what those silly end-time forecasters say, they don't know either. No one knows. So we've got to be ready and prepared at all times. In line with that, turn to Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, and sorry I don't give you enough time to turn there, but we're in, we're in a hurry. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compa- uh, comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. Now when the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. You ever run out of gas in your car? You ever run out of gas? Let me ask you something. Why? How in the world can we run out of gas in this day and age? I mean, our vehicles are equipped with a gas gauge. Maybe your gas gauge doesn't work. Okay, that's a, that's a good out. But other than that, I mean, mine's got a screen, and when the, when the low fuel light comes on, it shows a map of the closest gas stations. I have no excuse. You probably don't either. You have a gas gauge, you have a, a, like an orange or a red area. When the needle gets there, you know you need to get gas. Your car probably dings at you. It might even talk to you. We have no excuse for running out of gas these days. So why do it? Well, why did the five foolish virgins run out of oil? I think for the same reasons that we run out of gas. Number one, they, they ignored the warning signs, right? You ever get me of that? You ever get me of seeing that, that little fuel light come on and you just say, well, I, I mean, I've got plenty more miles to go. This has happened before, and I, I still made it another 20 or 30 miles. I've seen the needle at that point before, and I was able to go much further. It's just a suggestion, right? The five foolish virgins ignored the warning signs, and it cost them. You know why people typically die in a tornado? A lot of times people die in tornadoes because they ignore the warnings. I know I came from Tornado Alley. I had a basement, but oftentimes I would stand on the front porch and watch. Because I knew I could always just run into the basement. 
But so often, the weatherman would say that the tornado was heading for us and it would always go around us. It never seemed to cause much damage where I was at. And a lot of people think that way. We've heard this time and time again. The tornado's not, never going to get that close. And the people close to my hometown in Joplin, Missouri, they learned really quick that it can get close. That it can cause a, a mile-wide strip of devastation through that town. But many people get hurt or killed in tornadoes because they ignore the warning signs. That's what the foolish virgins did. They ignored the signs. Romans 6.23, for instance, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can even go on down in, in Matthew 25, where it says, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And Jesus closes the parable of the ten virgins with these words, Be on the alert, for you do not know the day nor the hour. In other words, Jesus is saying, all the way through Matthew chapter 25, but all the way through the Gospels, life is going somewhere. This isn't all that there is, so you better be prepared. Another reason people run out of gas is because they have a false confidence in the moment. Everything seems fine in the moment. My car's not sputtering. It doesn't seem like it's lost any power. I'm good to go at least for a little while longer. And I think that's what the foolish virgins were probably thinking as well. They were excited about the coming of the bridegroom. They never thought that maybe there would be a delay, and they should have, because in this day and time, there were always delays. Because the bridegroom would come and meet the bride at either her house or the wedding venue, and after the wedding, they didn't hop on a camel and ride off into the sunset. There was a week of partying. The newlyweds were treated like royalty. There was a procession through the streets after nightfall. And that procession would wind up at the bridegroom's home for a feast. And the Jewish bridesmaids would then meet the bridegroom and, and be there for the procession to arrive and for the banquet to start. Who knows how long that would take? They should have been prepared for a delay because there were always delays. The bridegroom was coming. They were excited, but they didn't prepare. Everything seemed fine in the moment. But folks, fine can turn to fatal in the blink of an eye. And those who run out of gas, I think, at least this is my, my fault, those who run out of gas wrongly assume that they can get it later going to a funeral one time in Seagraves, Texas, and I was in the old church van. I got to La Mesa, and I thought, eh, I'm still good. There's nothing after La Mesa to get to Seagraves. I, I, I rolled into Seagraves on, on fumes. Have you ever done that? You ever, you ever look at your gas gauge, and you're almost home, and you think, oh, I need gas, but I, I don't want to get it now. I don't want to get back out. I'll just go, oh, I'll get it in the morning. Then you almost get to work and see it again. You realize, oh, I forgot to get gas. I'll get it after work. And you keep putting it off. You keep putting it off until finally you run out of gas, right? Well, when you look at the, the situation with the five foolish virgins, you see that they were perhaps banking on later. They were putting it off, perhaps. Maybe they just didn't prepare in the beginning. But everything seemed fine in the moment. There'd be plenty of time to get oil for their lamps later. And those who think that they have plenty of chances to get right with God have made just the same foolish assumption that the five foolish virgins made. They made 
just find themselves locked out of heaven. Jesus' coming ends our opportunity, and it seals our fate. Remember what John wrote. He said, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you have that confidence? Do you know that you have eternal life? Is your salvation secure? If not, then why don't you do something about it? It's also John who wrote these words, but if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Are you walking in the light? And if not, then why not? Because this is something within your power, something that you can take care of, even at this moment. Kind of like running out of gas, we're all running out of time. You are closer to eternity in this moment than you ever have. The warning light is flashed. It's time to do something spiritual. Let me ask you, why do you think these five women were labeled foolish? I mean, obviously they were unprepared, right? That really seems to be the only distinction, doesn't it? You notice that in this, in this parable? You have five prudent and five foolish. In the beginning, they both look the same. There's really no discernible difference between the groups. The only distinction made is that some were prepared, some were not. It's not like these foolish virgins were called foolish because they were immoral. They were virgins. They were sexually pure. It wasn't like they were cruel or they were gossips or they were talebearers or anything like that. They just weren't prepared. And that alone kept them out of heaven. That's a scary thought to me. And I hope it is to you, because hopefully it incites a reaction. You see, Jesus dealing in contrast over and over again in the Bible. You look at Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24, and you see the contrast between wise and foolish again, right? But you have the wise builder, and you have the foolish builder. Both of them wanted the same thing. They both wanted a house. You get the idea that maybe you're walking down the street and you wouldn't know the difference between the two houses? What's the only difference that you see? What's the distinguishing mark between the two houses? When you get between the, beneath the surface, right? When you look below the surface, it's the foundation that was wrong, which meant that the foolish builder did not take his time to research and understand that where he was building his house was suspect to torrential downpours, to flooding, Maybe the wise builder drilled down deep into the bedrock to put his house on a firm foundation. The wise builder took all the necessary measurements and read the blueprints and all that kind of stuff, if you will. But the foolish builder didn't take that time. He was hasty. And he put up a structure without taking the time to build a solid foundation. And that's really the glaring difference between the two. But even more than that, it's not enough to look at a house when it's done. You've got to take the time in the beginning, right? You've got to look beneath the surface. Consider what is written just before this parable about two builders. Yet Jesus making the contrast between the broad and narrow gates. Another contrast, right? Then he speaks about false prophets and how you will know them by their fruit, right? The difference between a true prophet and a false prophet is their fruit. A good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. And then notice these words. 
in Matthew 7, verse 21 and following. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. But God, I follow my Bible reading plan every day. But God, I, I come to church virtually every Sunday and Wednesday. Even when we have special events, I'm here. But God, I, I drop my money in the collection plate every week. But God, I taught Bible class. But God, but God, I did all these things. One thing that I think we fail to consider is that this is in the context still of false preachers. Or false preachers. I'm not sure that we always grasp that. But still, there is a relevant 